0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at GraceCitySD.com.
1: Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your hev- for, from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your teachings about the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you that through your teachings that we get to be more like Jesus, more like you, and less like ourselves. And I just pray, Lord, that that through Randall's message that we would just understand a deeper, have a a deeper awareness of your love and how it affects others around us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: All right, good morning. How's everyone doing? All right, well, my name is Randall. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. I'm I'm the lead pastor of Grace City, and uh, we're in this strategic alliance right now. And and really, the heart of it is, is that we believe that uh, we're better together for the glory of God. We we want to see this church uh, growing and thriving and, and reaching people, uh, but also growing relationally and also as disciples of Jesus. This past week, we got to meet up with some of the men in this church, and we had almost forty guys uh, gathering together, going through this book, The Cure. And I'm I'm super excited about that because here's the thing: it's about being vulnerable. It's about taking off the masks. Here's the thing that we do in church. We put on masks. We pretend like we're better than we are. And it was awesome to see that there are guys that are gathering together saying, you know what? I want to grow. I want to grow closer to Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're journeying together over this next month. We're reading this book. And I think it fits really well with the Sermon on the Mount if it's really well with what we're talking about today. Because as you read Matthew 6, 1 through 15, here's the message. It is about authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. What is it as Jesus is talking about here that he he really wants to get to the heart of? It's time to stop pretending. It's time to stop performing to get to a place where we feel like we're accepted by God and we earned it. But he's saying, no, 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 no. It's about your heart. It's about the heart. And so over this year, we've been studying Jesus, most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at how this message gives us marks or indicators of what a real Christian looks like. And today's message is very important because Jesus is making this bold distinction. He's saying, here's what an authentic faith centered on God looks like. And then there's a counterfeit faith centered on self. Authentic faith centered on God and a counterfeit faith centered on self. And what he does is he gives us signs of what a counterfeit faith looks like. When I was 19 years old, I was a, uh, a leader at a youth camp, and I was on this traveling team, and that's the, the year I met my wife, and uh, we were doing this PR for our, our Christian university that I, we went to, um, and that, that week of camp was great. It was a middle school week of camp. Really enjoyed it. Got to meet some new kids and, um, you know, really help them and encourage them in their faith. And one of the things that they did that week was they said, you know what, uh, Randall, we need you to do something. It's okay. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you need me to do? They said, we're going to do a Jesus coming back party. And w- so what we're going to do is we're going to wake up all the kids at 2 a.m. And we need somebody to be Jesus. And so we think that you should be Jesus. And so what you're going to do is you're going to put on the Jesus robe, and you're going to put on the the hair, and you're going to put on the beard and all that stuff, and you're going to go stand up on the hill over there. We're going to wake up all the kids at 2 a.m., and then we're going to call them outside and say, Look, Jesus is back. And then you're going to quote some scripture, and then it's going to be done. Okay? Okay? So, at about 1.55 a.m., I get into place, and I'm standing up on the hill, and I've got the Jesus outfit on, and then at 2 a.m., there's this big trumpet sound, and then all the kids are woken up and, and brought outside, and I'm standing up on the hill, and there's this bright light that shines behind me. And I quote the scripture, and then it's done. The kids go back inside. So I'm like, okay, I wonder what they think, you know, the next morning. So I start to ask around a little bit. I said, what would you guys think about that last night? They were like, it was kind of weird that you were just standing up there on the hill, <laughs> acting like you were Jesus at 2 a.m. I said, well, how'd you guys know it was me? He said, because when they shot the, shine the light, it was like we could see your basketball shorts underneath your outfit, <laughs> the white robe. <laughs> Jesus coming back party. See, for the campers, it was obvious I wasn't Jesus. But spotting counterfeit Christianity is not as simple. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. The difference between right and almost right. Okay, it's not as obvious as me standing up on the hill right there. But it's like almost there. Almost right. So why is Jesus addressing this? Because he desires true disciples. And let's be honest. Some of you have felt the painful effects of counterfeit Christianity. It's the reason why some of you left the church in the past, or a family and friends who have a bad taste in their mouth when they hear the term Christian. In 2007, Dave Kinneman released a book entitled Unchristian What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. They pulled unchurched Americans to see what they thought of Christians. And this is what the responses were. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hi- hypocritical. 72% said out of touch with reality. 70% insensitive to others. Okay, here's the truth. From prosperity gospel preachers to moralistic Bible thumpers... I can see why this perception of Christians isn't so positive. But what if the Christianity that produced those types of stats isn't Christianity at all? What if it's the same counterfeit religiosity Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount? And so our text today is Matthew 6, 1 through 15. And here's some context. Up to this point, Jesus has kept the common theme of someone who lives for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. See, this is somebody who's been radically changed by God from the inside out. And and now no longer lives for themselves, but for the glory of God. They're a new creation. And chapter 6 is introducing us to a new section where religious activities are addressed. What it talks about in this section is giving to the poor, prayer. Specifically, we see the Lord's Prayer here. And we also see fasting a little bit later. And these are not if activities of a Christian. It's not... If they do it, Jesus says, if you're a true believer, you're going to do these things. But he really addresses how these activities are done, how these activities are done, how someone prays, how someone gives to the poor. And so, how does an authentic Christian live this out? Well, in today's text, Jesus addresses three areas we must be radically changed in by God. The first one is the motivation. The second is the perspective. And the third is the results. The motivation, the perspective, the results. And so number one, the motivation. Look look at verses one through six. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the, other, on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Well, there are two types of heart motivations that we can have for doing acts of righteousness. Good deeds. In verse 2, Jesus says, when. So again, it's not if you're going to do good deeds as a Christian. The issue is, how's your heart? How are you doing them? And so first... He dresses how the hypocrites do it. How how do the hypocrites live? Now, the term hypocrites is important here. Commentator John Stott notes this. He says, in classical Greek, the Hippocrates was first an orator and then an actor. So figuratively, the word came to be applied to anyone who treats the world as a stage on which he plays a part. He lays aside his true identity and assumes a false one. He wears a mask. And so, as Jesus says this word, hypocrite, he's saying that they're using the world as a stage to get the applause of others. And ultimately, this mass that he talks about here represents the idea that it's this. I'm a good person. God should love me. Look at all the things that I'm doing. What is the heart behind that? It's pretending and it's performing to try and act before God and others like I'm good enough. See, what it is is centered on me. That's the heart of it. You see, this type of motivation is about reputation. Look at verse 1. To be seen by others. Verse 2. To be honored by others. But also, it's this it's self congratulating. Look at verse three. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why not? Well, Jesus is giving this visual that after we do a good deed, we are tempted to shake our own hand and say, Great job. Isn't that a funny visual? It's like you do one thing over here, but you're ready to just shake your own hand saying, aren't you great? Awesome job. Self-congratulating. And essentially, the good deed wasn't done for the other person. It was done for me. So I could congratulate myself. And so that's what the hypocrite looks like. That's the life of the hypocrite. And Jesus is saying it is in the heart of all of us, all of us. And so how does Jesus tell us that an authentic Christian lives? Well, verse six sums it up well. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Okay, so it's, it's, he's unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What this looks like is this. That you're not living on the stage of this world, performing for others, but saying, I live for an audience of one. I live for God. And there will be things that you do that no one else sees, but it's okay because God sees, and that's the one that I'm here for. Your father, who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. My life is for God. But again, another part of this is this lives to seek a reward from God, not others. Verse 4 says, Then your Father will reward you. Verse 6, Then your Father will reward you. Verse 8, Then your Father will give you what you need. Again, how does an authentic Christian live? No longer is it for the applause of others, but it is for God. This is a heart motivation that has been radically changed. It's about God, not me. Again, commentator John Stott says this, the purpose of Jesus's emphasis on secret prayer is to purify our motives in praying. As we are to give out of a genuine love for people, so we are to pray out of a genuine love for God. We must never use either of these exercises as a pious cloak for self-love. A pious cloak for self-love. It wasn't done for God. It was done for me. And so ultimately, what is this reward that he's talking about here? It's not that end goal of lifting myself up, but is the end goal of being closer to God. God is the reward. He's the end goal. Not the applause of people or for me to congratulate myself and say, look at me, how great I am. It's a different motivation. Growing up, I was very close with my grandmother. Amazing woman. And one of the things about my grandma was she would do anything for me, right? Like she, I, like, I would be like, grandma, can I get this thing? She'd be like, okay, yeah. And she was, I loved my grandma, right? She was great. Like she, but the thing is, I remember one day we were crossing the street, and she saw an older teenager. And she looked over at me, and she said, Randall, when you're their age, you probably won't want to spend any time with me. And I looked at her and said, grandma, No, that's not true. And then I remember when I did her funeral. And that always stuck in my head. Because what was the most important thing wasn't the things that she got me. Wasn't the things that she did for me. It was me actually being with her that was the most important thing. And and what this is about is this that when you start to see that God is a God who loves you, who's given you grace, and all of these things, your motivation starts to change for why you do things. It's I want to be closer to God. I want to be with God. Not I want to get things from God. See that? It's a switch, it's a relational switch. And so secondly, it, 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 it changes our perspective. That, that's the second point, the perspective. Look at verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us This day, our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In this section, Jesus addressed uh, in the previous section, Jesus addressed the Jewish hypocrites. Now he addresses the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and how they would do things to get things. And Jesus gives us a couple perspectives here that we can have. The first one is this, our perspective with God, our perspective with God. So verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, Jesus is saying, okay, there's a perspective of God that you have here. If you think it's just about the many words and the the, the way you say things and and, and all the the, the ornate language, right, all of those things are are getting God to hear me. He said, that's not the point. See, what this is is this perspective of God is very impersonal. They thought they were going to be heard by their many words. And essentially, it's coming to God more like a boss trying to earn his attention. If I can just say it this way or do this thing, then maybe God will hear me. And I want you to hear this. That is what every other religion in the world is based off of. It's trying to work your way to God. It's trying to earn your way to God in some way or another. That's, if you boil it down, that's what it is. What is it that makes Christianity revolutionary? It's that you can't earn it, but God did it for you. Right, so that's the revolutionary nature of Christianity. But Jesus is pointing out here saying, okay, they come and they think that they'll be heard by their many words. Jesus says this He says, let me give you another perspective. Verse 9 Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. From an impersonal boss relationship to now a father family relationship. This is deeply personal. God as father. What scholars believe is that in Jewish culture, addressing God as father was not common until Jesus. There's a couple verses in Isaiah where it talks about God as father. But like this, many believe Jesus was the first rabbi to address God in this way. It would have shocked people what he was saying. Why is this important? It's a helpful quote from Timothy Keller. He says, If you have a relationship with God as a boss, you say, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Now God owes me. That produces a completely different kind of life. And then if you say that you have been chosen by grace, that you have a family relationship, that is, you have a grace based relationship with God as a father. And if God is your father, then your self-image is based not on you being a good person, but on you being a loved person. That's a totally different relationship. Right? As, as, as my kids are growing up, let me just say, they have some bad days. All right, they have some bad days. And they've come up to me, and I remember my son, he, he, was, he was probably the hardest. Different kid now. But very early on, he would have some really bad days. He's like, look, look at me, Dad. Dad, you going to kick me out? You kick me out of the family? I mean, it, like, bad. No. I'm your father. You're my son. I'm sorry, we're stuck with each other. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's a family relationship. You're with each other with each other. And and, and what Jesus is introducing us to is that there's a a father in heaven who loves you more than any earthly father ever could. More than any earthly father ever could. And so what it does is it it radically changes your perspective of, of who I am. Hold on, you love me no matter what? Yeah. Why? Because I died for every bad thing that you did. Friend, that, that's the gospel friends that's what it is is he's inviting you into a relationship like that and our perspective of God changes but secondly it says verse 10 your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven I wish I could touch more on the Lord's prayer because it's 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 a significant thing in the life of, it should be for every Christian. But here's the thing. What you see is this. Jesus starts out and everything is about God. It's God-centered. It's focused on God. But then the next section it talks about, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And there were people that that early on in, in, in the Christian church, took they were like, okay, you went from all this lofty theology of who God is and what he's, and then it's like you ask him for your daily bread. on, oh, you can ask God for those essential things. He cares about you that much. It just kind of, it was hard for people to believe. But when your perspective is that God is a father, then it changes you about the way that you view life. Because here's the scary prayer. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know the natural bent of the human heart? It's not your will be done, it's my will be done. Isn't it? My will be done. But the scariest prayer that you can pray Your will be done at first, and then it becomes the safest prayer. Because when you start to trust him in faith, you know that he's a good father who loves you, who cares for you. And you can trust him with your life. See, what's the lie of the enemy from the garden? You can't trust God. He's holding out on you. But what we find is that the truth is, Jesus says, as you pray, it's no longer my will anymore. My life is no longer mine. It's God's life. It it radically changes you from the inside out. You, You see, for many of us, this seems normal. Oh, yeah, God's will be done. God's will be done. But I want you to sit on that for a moment. Because God's will be done no matter what, no matter what happens in life, no matter the trials that may come, no matter the difficulties and losses that may come, God's will be done. He's trustworthy. He can be trusted. You know, again, my kids. I was talking with my daughter Elle yesterday. She's seven years old, and we were talking about the summer. I said, "Okay." I got some things I'm signing you up for, some good things that I think will really help you and all this stuff. And she said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So, well, honey, no, no, no. Like, here's why this is really going to be good for you. And, and you should learn to swim. I know you think you can swim, but you really need to sw- learn how to swim. All of these really good things. No, I, 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 got, I got this. I said, honey, here's what's happening here. First, you don't trust me that I'm caring for you. Secondly, the only reason I'm saying these things is because they are going to benefit you in life. And you're going to look back and say it was a better thing. But you don't realize it at the time because you just don't want to sit on the couch all summer and watch TV. And I'm telling you that's not the best thing for you. But you've got to trust me that I want what's best for you. We have a loving Father. When your perspective changes and you start to see that there's a loving Father in heaven that's looking down on you and loving you and saying, hey, there's some things that you're not going to like. But I love you so much, I'm going to get you through it. Different perspective on life. And Jesus is helping us to see that. Lastly, the results, verse 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this is really the litmus test, isn't it? This is tough. See, why does Jesus make forgiveness the true test of our Christianity? Here's why. Because the foundation of Christianity is God's forgiveness to us. It's that that when God looked at me, he forgave me. He forgave me. And it's forgiveness that kills this sense of superiority we can harbor in our hearts toward others. The result is that our lives and relationships start to heal when we understand God has forgiven us a debt that we could have never paid. See, it's much like the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And what happens in that parable is there's this servant who comes to the king and says, hey, I have this debt. And and so he's basically saying it's time to pay up. It's time to pay up. And the servant gets on his knees and he says, please, 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 I can't pay this debt. And so the king looks at Adam and says he has compassion or pity on him, and he lets him go, and he says, okay, your debt is forgiven. It's basically an, it was an a debt this man could have never paid. And so he goes off, and then he sees somebody who essentially owes him a hundred bucks down the street, and he grabs the man by the neck. It says he starts choking him. And he gets this guy thrown into prison because, he okay, you, 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 you owe me. I said, please, please, please forgive my debt. Like, I'll, I'll pay you. I says, nope, you're going into prison. Throws him into prison. And then the king finds out about it, and he comes to this man. Here's what it says in verses 32 through 35. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your hearts. Here's the thing. We're not gonna be a forgiving people unless we're repenting people, unless we're saying, you know what? God, I was wrong. I was wrong. And so when you're able to repent and you're able to say, God, I was wrong, I, I, you paid a debt for me that I could have never paid, then you start to look at people in a different way. It's, it's a transformative way. See, where do you get the strength to forgive like this? C.S. Lewis said it well when he says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Where do you get the strength to do this? It's when you look at God and say, thank you, God, that you've forgiven it. It's when you look to the king who's forgiven a debt that we could have never paid that we can look on the person who's hurt us and say, I forgive you. See, it's a forgiven people forgiving others. And the results are this, that your life starts to heal. Your life starts to heal. You become a different person than you were before. You're not that angry, bitter person any longer. Because I believe this, I'm not better than anybody. I'm not superior to anyone. But God has loved me he's called me his child. So just some takeaways. Number one, what's your perspective of God? What's your perspective of God? A.W. Tozer said, in the knowledge of the holy, he says, what, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move forward our mental image of God. Do you, in your mind, have this picture of God being the boss that you're working for and you're earning things for, and then when you don't get that thing that you think you've earned, you're upset with him? I was working so hard for you. I, I... I thought I did all of these things for you, God. I checked all the things off the checklist, and you didn't come through. If that's the case, then we're probably looking at God like the boss and we're the employee just trying to earn his love or earn what we want from him. But the perspective that the Bible gives us is this, that he's a father. He's a loving father who it says In Hebrews, that he will discipline us when we need it. But it's out of love that he does that. And it's out of his grace and mercy that he continues to love us despite us being us. He draws us in like that. And so what is your perspective of God? Second, who are you when you're alone? One of the things that it talks about in this passage is in secret, right? The, the person that you are in secret. This isn't just a Sunday morning coming, checking it off the list, saying, okay, I made it to church on Sunday. But here's what it is. It it, come, it, it breaks through into not just a Sunday morning, but every day of our lives. Jesus is, is, is saying, okay, when you're a Christian, it breaks through into every part of your life. And this is the most telling thing about us. What are you like when you're not here? What's your prayer life like? What's your thought life like? Do we treat Sunday morning as just a time that we come, we worship, we check it off the list? Or is our relationship with God based? on something more. See, what God is inviting us into is a deep relationship with him, an intimate relationship with him. And so, again, any of these things, prayer, giving to the needy, any of those things are not a burden that he's placing on us, but a blessing that we get to live in this way. It is a new life so i get to talk to the god of the universe and he cares so who are we when we're alone because that's character that's integrity that's that's who we are right integrity what it means is that you are one same person here on a sunday morning out on a friday night same person Again, not the mask. Not the hypocrite. Lastly, do you have a forgiving heart? See, Jesus knew that the Pharisees were going to have a lot of trouble forgiving because they had a sense of superiority over everyone else. And that's why they felt like they had the right to harbor anger, bitterness, and that And never forgive. And here's the thing why do we not forgive? Well, one of the reasons is we don't believe we're that bad. I don't think I'm that bad. See, we look at others and say, I would never do that. I can't forgive them because they're such a bad person. And what happens is, like the Pharisees, we could believe we're superior to the real sinners we like, I'm a sinner, but that's the real sinners over there. And here's what the gospel does. It starts out by telling us that we are more sinful than we would ever have dared believe. Than we would have ever dared believe. And it humbles us, and it gentles us, and it gives us the strength to forgive out of the forgiveness Christ has given us. See, what we have a problem of is this. We start to shrink the cross in our life. And we start to say, okay, the cross is good. Thanks, Jesus, for forgiving me. Now I'm going to go on with my life. But what happens is when you become a Christian, you start to see the holiness of God and who He is and what He's done. And you start to see the depths of your sin. And you say, man, oh man, God, you could love a person like me. It's, It's the point where the Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Right As he gets closer and closer to God, he sees the holiness of God. He says, no way could you love me, but you have. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Right, And so what happens is this, that the cross, it doesn't stay this small little thing in your life, but it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and you say, wow, look at the cross. Look at what it's done. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at what Jesus has done for me. And it humbles you, and it gentles you. And it makes you a new person. The other part is this. We want to play God. We look at others and we want to exact justice on our behalf. We don't really believe that all people are accountable to God. And ultimately, he's the judge. Right? Like, why don't we? Why don't we? We we Don't believe it. But Romans 12, 19 says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. As Christians, how can we forgive? It's knowing that God will make right every wrong. He will make right every wrong. But it's trusting him and believing that, that it's true. Let me end with this. This is the gospel. It says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When you understand the forgiveness of God... It's an invitation to take off the mask and stop pretending and performing like we're something that we're not and to come to him just as we are, just as I am, right? Just as I am. And know that the God of the universe is taking care of our sins and we can trust him. And he's a loving father. We'll say, let me take that mask. We're gonna take that, we're gonna throw that away, and, and we're gonna deal with some of the stuff that's really in your heart and really in your life, and you're a new person. Not because of you, but because of what Christ can do. In Christ alone. And he accomplished it all by sending his son Jesus for you and me. The perfect Son of God. He lived this out perfectly. And he looked down on the cross. He said, This father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's done that for each one of us. Would you receive Christ today? Would you come to him and see that he's a loving, loving Father? We pray this and let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the gift of your grace. And thank you that we can come and just be authentic before you. We we didn't get this right. This wasn't on our own efforts, but it was on the efforts of Christ. Thank you for forgiving us of this huge debt we could have never paid and uh, making us new in you. And so help us to believe that today and let that truth change us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at GraceCitySD.com. Gray City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.